Hi folks, a little bit of housekeeping before we start the podcast. This is the live Tortoise Shack Sunday special we recorded yesterday with an audience of our online members. It was fantastic to sit down and talk again with Emma D'Souza, who is always such a brilliant contributor to the Tortoise Shack. We had Maria Delaney, the editor of Noteworthy.ie, talking about a really in-depth investigation they have carried out into pesticides that you don't want to miss and Philip O'Connor joined us from Stockholm to give us the latest on what has happened to Swedish democracy Uh, and it's quite a chilling message he has even if there is a little bit of optimism in there Uh, if you want to come along to these shows you get the link you you register and you come in and we turn the mics off the end we have a bit of a QA and a and a laugh with with our members it's simple as joining us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise And you get the invite in your inbox as a member. You also get access to all of our podcasts, including our back catalogue of over a thousand podcasts, all in one place, in one consolidated feed, and it's plea-free. So if you can, please join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for sharing. Uh, Really, really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Hello and welcome to this Tortoise Shack Sunday special. Today we are joined by Philip O'Connor all the way from Sweden. We are joined by Emma D'Souza. Emma is a writer, a campaigner, a peace builder, and she's the chair of the Women's Forum. And we're also joined by Maria Delaney, the editor of Noteworthy. And of course, we're joined by Tony Groves from the Tortoise Shack podcast. Tony. It's a lovely morning. Uh, well, it was a lovely morning in Dublin this morning. I don't know what it's like in, in Stockholm, Donegal or, or in Five Mile Town. But nonetheless, we, we, we'll, we'll, uh, we've gotten a very everybody's getting further north as we bring on the guests, you know. Uh, but, but Martin, I want to just mention a couple of things that were just insane this week before we start. Um, I don't know if everybody's been paying attention, but of course, America is having a meltdown uh, and they've gotten to the stage where they're actually weaponizing refugees, putting them onto buses and planes and sending them to um, to the vice president's house in Long Island and out to Martha Martha's Vineyard uh, to, to actually harass people. And this is really, really, really ugly and sinister. I, I mean, a few weeks ago, Joe Biden got kind of depending on what side of it was you know people were saying fair play to him he said you know they're close to fascist semi-fascist this is incredible this is crazy stuff imagine weaponizing refugees people arriving at the border and putting them on a bus and sending them to people's homes to create a scene it's just disgusting Um, and um, fred uh, logue pointed out that those those solicitors those lawyers that are working for those people over there they didn't have to do any of that they came out and they they stood and they gave statements and they're helping people and they've gone over and above way over and above what you would normally expect a lawyer in America to do. So, you know, it's nice to see that those people are there as well, Tony. Oh, yeah. But I mean, do you know this, uh, the comedian Killian Sunderman? Um, he he went down to the border when Trump got in. He literally went to America, went down to the Mexico-America border, U.S. border and helped people uh, transitioning, move, trying to move across. And he said it was awful at the time. This is this is now actually saying we're as I said they're coming up to the midterm elections and they're weaponizing um, the immigration issue yet again and that's you know it's been typical there's always in the build up we'll always hear about a caravan of of refugees people coming all this but the sending to people's homes for p- political point scoring is just disgusting it's actually disgusting and then the second thing that's happened there is obviously the calls for a 15 week um ban on abortion as a as the 15 week line now and i you know it's it's we'll come back to it when we maybe i know we've a couple of people in, in down the line this week maybe talk to from the states but i just think flag that as well it has to be it has to be looked at it's just yeah yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go straight to maria if you don't mind maria maria the second part of noteworthy's investigation into pesticides landed midnight last night this is very interesting stuff. Um, I read the first part and I've been going through the second part and the, even the way uh, pesticides are stored. I mean, nobody's in compliance with any of the rules. Will you tell us a bit about it, Maria? Yeah, thanks, Martin. Um, yeah, so this is a series by Anthea Lasia on pesticide use by public authorities. Um, and um, as always, I suppose, just to give a, um, an idea of how we came about this. So the idea for this series was sent to us by a noteworthy reader, and then we put the project together and crowdfunded for it. 
Um, and there was a huge amount of work involved in the project. It involved actually 60, uh, over 60 access to the environment requests. Um, so I suppose the first thing to say is what is a pesticide? Um, because like I suppose myself, I wasn't really too clear on the terminology before this. But it's actually a collective term for herbicides, insecticides, fungicides and biological controls. So it kind of covers all of those things. So that's involving plants um, herbicides, fungicides is for funguses and then insecticides, obviously, for insects. But what did we find? So um, we looked at for the article out today, we found that um, across, like I suppose one of the issues we found was across the investigation, public bodies had records that were paper-based. Um, and I suppose for an example, it's a good example in today's article, we reported that the government inspections found issues in how nine out of 10 vendors handled pesticides. And that included unapproved or revoked products for sale, as well as no staff training on site. And it wasn't simply a case of asking the department and a spokesperson giving us that figure of nine out of 10. Anthea actually received 281 pages of reports from the Department of Agriculture, which she read one by one and picked out any issues or actions by inspectors. And I suppose the other thing is the same is true for other public bodies, as well as councils, which we examine in detail actually on Tuesday on our main article. So it's all this kind of paper-based records, especially for something like pesticides, which have been linked, um, like say glyphosate has been linked to cancer. I was just going to say that the damage that these pesticides can do, Maria, there is a huge amount of damage these pesticides can do, isn't there? Yeah, and I suppose like that's the thing, like um, like herbicides are one of the most used out of all pesticides. And one of the most popular is the weed killer Roundup. And that contains that chemical I was talking about, glyphosate, um, which has which the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, found is probably carcinogenic to humans in 2015. And there has been a lot of research on that. Um, and despite those health concerns, um, herbicides containing glyphosate are readily available in hardware stores and other shops across the country with brands such as Roundup, Weedall, Dof, Resolva, kind of ones you'd see on the shelves um, if you're in there. And I suppose one of the main issues is that once applied, they spread and they linger in the environment for a long time and they can contaminate water bodies. And a recent study actually found that in um, for glyphosate, they found in 80% of over 2,000 urine samples from adults and children in the US, it was found in those urine samples. So it just shows that it is in the environment. Um, I suppose one of the other things we looked at, and it was an article out on Friday. So this is a three-part series. So the first one was out on Friday. And we looked at um, pesticide use in public authorities. And we actually found that thousands of litres are used on Irish roads and forests every year. And I suppose with the state-owned forestry com company Quilcha spending around 1.5 million every year on pesticides, and one of the most one of the pesticides they use the most was glyphosate, which is that um, pesticide linked to cancer. And around 10,000 liters were used, and they said that they treated 2,300 hectares with that chemical for vegetation control. And that equates to around 0.006% of the estate, but it's still a very large proportion of land. I, I did uh, hear recently about um, where they were spraying, where people would collect berries, normally collect berries during the winter. I had heard that, that they're spraying those areas, which is, you know, that's human consumption. People are going to consume that stuff. What needs to be done, Maria? Uh, I mean, I presume stuff needs to be done. Oh, oh do we have to tune into part three? To, to find out? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a plug for part three. So, um, like, I, there is actually um, regulation in regards to um, all of this. So, it's the EU Sustainable Use of Pesticides Directive, which was enacted in Irish law in 2012. So, there are regulations there, and there are new proposed regulations coming in. Um, which ban it um, for use in public kind of spaces. I suppose just what you're saying about the collection of berries, um, like the biggest pesticide use is actually agriculture. So it would be food production. 
Um, but the issue that we were looking at was that, um, I suppose, despite concerns about the impacts on pesticides and human health and the environment, there's very little known about their use in roads or in amenities, forest settings, kind of public areas, because official statistics are compiled for agriculture, but they're not actually compiled for those. So that's why it was so difficult for us to get this information, because it isn't actually readily available. So I suppose that's one of the things that people would be calling for would be more data on their use in kind of settings outside agriculture. But um, the other thing is that there are people calling for a ban in public spaces. So places like roads, parks, playgrounds, and, and we will be covering that in a lot more detail on Tuesday because we'll be looking at um, their usage by local authorities, which is obviously one of the main places that people would interact with this. Thanks, Ter- Maria. It would terrify me. Noteworthy.ie folks help support the work. It's crowdfunded. You and if you have an idea for something, you can submit your idea. And once they crowdfund it, the guys go off and do the investigation. And as you can tell, it's pretty bloody in depth. So again, yeah. you know, uh, award-winning journalism that comes at, that comes at a, at a price. So you have to put your hands in your pocket. Um, and I I did see on, on a side note, Patreon let go about twenty percent of its staff uh, uh, last week. So I think uh, I think. Uh, I've my chosen way of making a few quid, Martin, is doomed. We, we're screwed. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not. It's not working. But thanks, Maria, for that. Um, no, I, thanks, Tony. And just I suppose before, like when you're saying your call for ideas, like it was given to us by the public and people. If they have any ideas, like local, regional, national, like just give us a shout on our website, so noteworthy.e or information at noteworthy.e. I, I, I can put my hand up here and say they're so comprehensive. Honest to God, noteworthy is so comprehensive. It's unbelievable how in you think they you think anything that's longer than four tweets. Well, I was going to say four tweets. You, the man who who does three hundred <laughs> threads, it's just disaster. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. Philip, you know this man has a thread that's going since twenty seventeen. Um, <laughs> Listen, we do need to move on. And actually, I'm going to this, this. This is going to be um, uh, Philip, if you don't mind. Give people something to be really afraid of now. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the Swedish elections have been have been yet again. You've been warning about this. It's not like it's new. You've been talking about it since I've known you and saying that, you know, stop talking about this uh, bastion of why can't we be more like the Swedes? Why can't we be more like the Nordics? You have been telling people about this. But lo and behold, the. Um, the, the democratic vote has uh, has swung in the direction that you've been warning us of for a number of years. What, what are we facing, Philip? Um, well, the, the thing I'd say about the result of the Swedish election, which took place last Sunday, and the result became pretty much official on Wednesday, was no matter how bad you think it is, Tony, it's probably about 10 times worse. So what happened last week was we went to election. Sweden is pretty famous for two things, right? Social democracy, and the other thing is weak minority governments. But this is a consensus society, so everybody talks it out. They put together a government. Things happen despite themselves, and you kind of drag everybody along with you. Now, about 20 years ago, the bull in the China shop that was the Sweden Democrats was released and it took a long time for them to find their footing. This is a party that was started by the neo-Nazi movement. It was previously known as Keep Sweden Swedish and that would probably tell you all you need to know about where they came from. The first committee of the party actually contained a guy called um, it was Gunnar Ekstrom, I think was his name but the most important salient fact about that guy is that he served with Hitler's Waffen-SS in the Second World War, right? So when you talk about right-wing populist parties in Norway and Denmark and Finland, right? They, you know, they had neo-Nazis in them. This is a neo-Nazi party, right? Um, the BBC described them as an ex-neo-Nazi party. There's nothing ex about them. So over the course of 20 years, Tony, they kind of doubled their vote from less than a half one percent about 20 years ago. They're now the second most popular party in the country. So last week, they got about 20.5% of the vote. And what that means is that they're not going to be in government here, Tony. It's highly, highly unlikely that they would be in government here with the sort of the centre-right or the right-wing bloc. But they will have a huge influence on what a weak centre-right or right-wing government is going to do over the next four years. The Social Democrats have contributed immensely to the growth of the Sweden Democrats, right? Just because they're left or centre-left doesn't mean that they haven't fucked things up entirely because the the voters that have gone to the Sweden Democrats are people who are disaffected with the centre, with centre-left politics. So it would be union members, people who see everything being sold off, people who would have seen the welfare state being sort of gradually, gradually, gradually sort of eroded, and in some cases very quickly eroded. 
And then when they see that this is happening, they go, okay, you know, I'm not getting looked after anymore. I'm in competition for resources with everybody from immigrants to kids in suburbs to whatever. And then they started voting for the Sweden Democrats. So what we have now is a situation where that centre-right block with the support of a neo-Nazi party has about 49.5% of the vote. Uh, the centre-left block under Sweden's first female prime minister, Magdalena Andersson, has about 48.5% of the vote. What we'll most likely get is a prime minister led by the moderate party leader, Ulf Christensen, who's one of the most deeply unimpressive people I've ever seen in politics. He's a bit like Martin and that the best idea he heard was the last idea he heard. Uh, <laughs> so he's going to be leading the government for the next four years. But everything that they have is going to be seized because they can't get a budget through the House without the support of the Sweden Democrats. It's that simple. And everybody went uh, to election knowing that they were, were going to do this. Right In 2018, I think it was, Ulf Christensen told a Holocaust survivor that he would never consider you know, doing anything with their support or talking to them. And then a year later, he changed tack. You'll see people try to tell you, oh, that's not actually what he promised that Holocaust. It is, right? Uh, the fact that he was talking about the centre-right and not his own party, don't let that cloud the waters. He lied to a Holocaust survivor. And now they're going to go into government. And everything, this this changes absolutely everything, right? So not only will you have the neoliberal end of things where everything that hasn't been sold off already, and an awful lot has already been sold off in Sweden. And he sold off by the centre-left as well. Like, let's tell the truth oh, here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, th th this is the thing. Like, I mean, the whole sort of problem of, like, of looking at this. We go, oh, you know, this is a far-right problem, this is a centre-right problem. No, it's also a story of the failure of the centre-left, right? And I wrote a piece which never really found any traction. I tried to get it into a few newspapers, I turned it down, etc., etc. But there's been a huge failing on the part of social democracy that I go back to New Labour and Tony Blair when the, the, the workers' movement sort of basically abandoned everybody went, actually, we can be all things to all people. We can be loved by business, we can be loved by culture, we can be loved by the worker. You can't do that. And when they abandoned those people and started to fight for this centre ground, you know, it was already too crowded. So, so the crowded space of Swedish politics have become even more crowded with the result that everybody's shifting to the right. And as I said at the very beginning, if you think it's bad, it's actually much, much worse than what you think. And, you know, to illustrate that, I'll tell you the things that I'm going to expect in the very short term, apart from those sell-offs, are you're going to see an awful lot of people being sent back to Somalia, to Eritrea, to Afghanistan. You're going to see an awful lot of um, the area where I live, you're going to see uh, the imp uh, imposition of stop and search without probable cause. You're going to see all these things in the very near future. So things that you previously would have thought would be impossible in Sweden are probably going to take place in the next weeks, if not months. Philip, why has Sweden become the poster boy for the right in Europe? And it has become the poster boy all through all through COVID. Uh, you know, Sweden was everybody's comparator was Sweden. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, uh, Martin, because Sweden is a kind of a canvas upon which anybody can project anything in politics, right? You can project, you know, the, the great uh, boom period of social democracy in the post-war years. That, Sweden's a brilliant example of that. But it's also uh, a brilliant example of failed integration. It's a brilliant example of the fact that, yes, we opened our doors, you know, we opened our hearts to refugees. We let 163,000 them in in 2015. Yeah, and then you just left them there. You didn't do anything about integrating them, you know? Most of what you'll see is integration politics in Sweden is actually assimilation. They just want people to be assimilated into the system and disappear. But they've no intention or they've no great desire, no great system in place to deal with trauma, to deal with education, to deal with language learning, to deal with workplace placement. And in fact, a lot of those people would have come in uh, through here, say Afghanistani kids who had, uh, you know, they do their, the equivalent of leaving cert here and then we just sort of fired out. But a lot of the, like the local employment agency, what would have been FOSS in Ireland doesn't exist anymore. It's just these tiny fragmented private companies who are now responsible for getting these people jobs. So to answer your question, Martin, Sweden is a blank canvas that politically everything can be sort of projected upon. And you can take from that what you will. Now, there's a whole, like, there's a, a treasure trove of misinformation out there as well. Uh, Sweden is the rape capital of the world. Sweden has the highest suicide rate in the world. All these things, none of which are true. But, you know, there's a case to be made for those things. You can take data and you can shoehorn it. The, the, the reason that Sweden has so many cases of rape is A, reporting it is much easier and B, so many more things are considered rape here. So a trigger warning for people uh, to do with sexual assault here and that. But digital penetration against the will of, of a party in Sweden is considered rape.
So that's it, right? So it doesn't have to be, you know, full sexual intercourse. Any, almost, not almost anything, but the, the definition of rape here is very, very broad, which leads to statistics that look like they're out of step with the rest of Europe, when in fact, if the rest of Europe used the same de- uh, definition of rape, well, then it would be the same thing, right? So that enables, and there is so yeah, much but that was, that was weaponized then. We know this. We've seen the things where you've had these gobshites showing up and saying, you know, filming themselves. You, 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 I know you saw some of these people walking around communities just trying to stop this stuff saying yeah, you know, 10 minutes this way yeah yeah yeah, yeah I, I i'm well aware of it but like i mean i suppose i mean we keep coming back to it this is in the week where we've we've been you've been, you've been watching it philip you've been talking about it coming and we've been told you know don't worry about it we read article after article that there's no no need to worry about it in ireland yet we see this week paul murphy getting kicked outside the doll and then we see uh you know ridiculous comparisons being made you know so it is actually it is it is something that is easily takes root and it can and it can grow quite quickly because that sentiment is it and we are and again i don't mean to make it just all about ireland but it's worrying when you see these ridiculous things now where people are talking about you know um there was a dog whistle about the amount of Georgians arriving now that, you know, it's OK taking Ukrainians, but not Georgians. And this was by, you know, what I would term the kind of finance area of, of Twitter. And we see it again in, in these areas and social media this discourse. So it's becoming toxic now. And again, some it's it's uh, Isabel Wilkerson's quote. The, the moment you create a, an out group, you dehumanize the one and then you give the the other, the in group, the yeah. ability to, to think less of these others. And this is where the this is where Sweden is now, in my mind, a few years ahead of where other places could go potentially. Mm. And and that's why I want you to call out those warnings and continue to do the work. But even if you look today, Tony, in the newspapers in Ireland, and this is this is constant, constant in Ireland now where we are being told that resources are limited. The exact same thing that happened in Sweden. And we're being told, I mean, it's in the, it's in a national newspaper today that immigration is the cause of the housing crisis in a national newspaper. I mean, that's outrageous. The it's same, outrageous. That's, that's the same talking head writes the same piece every six to eight weeks. Unfortunately, and, uh, Emma, he, continues you, to, he continues to get coverage. Emma, there, there is, this is going on. I, I know it's going on here in the South, but it's going on even worse in the north i mean to be in a minority grouping in the north is just you're totally forgotten about yeah and i mean look when it comes to immigration you know it is a weapon used all across the world in terms of a global trend um demonizing those seeking asylum or those uh going to a country for um immigration so it is uh deeply concerning and here in the north that being a minority group is is definitely difficult in terms of being able to access any kind of help or support yeah, we saw during the week some of the the, uh, the delivery riders were getting a rough time up north, and and that was disgraceful. People going about their ordinary work and just being stopped on the street and harassed because of their nationality. It is it is really shocking stuff. Well, if I could point out one thing there, Martin, and it's very important what Tony was saying, because there's many, many reasons. I could sit and talk to you for weeks about how and why in the timeline of what what has happened in Sweden and the other Nordic countries. Sweden has been slightly out of step. This has been the last country really to sort of fully embrace the far right. But the problem is that the far right here is on steroids in terms of ideology. But what Tony said there about the media is very important, right? There was Swedish Mick Clifford's 20 years ago saying the same thing, that this is nothing to be worried about, right? And anybody who knows anything about these things, if you go back over history, it's just like, now is the time to be worried about these things in Ireland. Not when these guys are getting, you know, 20% of the vote and you're wondering how you're going to deal with them, right? So now is the time to start looking at things. And really, from the perspective of most people listening to this podcast and watching this show here on a Sunday morning, we have a huge responsibility not to give up, right? We have a huge responsibility to continue to call these things out and to hold each other to account and to talk about these things that have been abandoned, right? And that's, you know, it, like it, this really is a story of the failure of European social democracy to adjust to Reaganomics and to adjust to Thatcherism. And we're seeing the fruits of that now because new public management is everywhere. You know, oh, you, the Michael O'Leary idea, make him the Taoiseach, we'll run everything like a business, everything be brilliant, right? 
we have to get away from these things and go back to talking about things that have become taboo in their own way, right? It's actually easier to be a neo-Nazi in Sweden now than it is to talk about solidarity, right? Not even the Social Democrats will talk about solidarity. They have been among the first to throw immigrant communities and communities like my community here under the bus. The, the Prime Minister, the first Prime Minister of Sweden, a female Prime Minister in Sweden, very proud moment, Magdalena Andersson, talking about, we don't want a Chinatown, we don't want a Somali town. So, Hold on a second. You know, where does this rhetoric come from? And it happened with Helle Tony Schmidt in Denmark. It happened in Norway. It's happened in Finland too. Austria. Austria, yeah, Austria was one of the first places, Tony, you know, and this is the thing that, you know, we honestly need to go out there and say, hang on a second. I had a very prominent um, politician onto me this morning and talking about the fact that there was a basically a sort of, you know, I don't even know a whole lot about the party. They're called nuance, which means nuance in English. And they're, it's basically a sort of a Muslim-ish party. It's people of faith coming together and they took like, I think it was 0.44% of the vote and people are going, oh, this is a disaster. You know, these are Islamists or whatever it's called. They're not, it's the 20% of the Nazis I'd be more worried about, lads, right? The fact that you've abandoned immigrants and they've started their own party because they feel they're not being listened to, we'll get to that later. But the clear and present danger to Swedish politics at the moment is the 25% who voted for a neo-Nazi party and the 29 odd percent of people who voted for parties who said they will rule with their support, right? That's one out of two Swedes, lads and ladies, who are pretty okay with having the neo-Nazis in the room, right? And if you don't understand the scale of that threat to Swedish democracy and to Scandinavian democracy and to European democracy, I've been talking about it for 20 years and there's very, very little more I can do to help you. Look, Philip, thanks for that. We do need to move on, but I appreciate it. And I think that's a fairly stark um Lay, outlay, how, you, how you've put it first this morning. I really appreciate it. Or this afternoon as it is actually currently. Um, in more bad news, uh, actually, maybe it's not so much bad news, Emma. Uh, we're gonna. I want to talk about the, the week that was. You wrote uh, a fascinating, not a fascinating, a, a really good piece for the Irish Times that got a really good reception, except for in certain co- areas where they decided that, which was really unusual. I, I thought the reaction to I, uh, the comments that were made by Sinn Fein, how they how they've reacted to the the, the death of the Queen, how how you know it. Normal relations were just treated as people were astounded by, you know, making good statements. Michelle O'Neill had a very good week. Some of the reactions were quite, quite um, funny, whereby I thought, I think it was that Arlene Foster said more or less, and I'm going to paraphrase, you know, yes, they did really, really well, but it was so insincere. <laughs> um, the, Emma, tell us like what it's been like to be uh, an Irish, an Irish citizen in, in, in the North watching this all play out over the last 10 days nearly at this stage. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been it's been a fascinating week, really. It's been historical, um, it, you know, for, for many people to be going through this process now where Queen Elizabeth has passed. Um, and I think that when we look at it through the prism of politics, there is no doubting that Sinn Féin had an incredible week, that they played an absolute blinder in terms of um, how they approached this. And you mentioned there Arlene Foster's um, comments about it and that was kind of a you know that 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 feeling that um it had become about Sinn Féin was something that was quite present within some within unionism um Jim Allister also had put out a video about how it's not about Sinn Féin which coincidentally made it all about Sinn Féin um and I think that what it kind of points to uh, and what the piece was about in the Irish Times was the fact that um Unionism in many ways political unionism has sort of lost sight of the power and strength that can come from reaching out the hand of friendship and from that kind of, you know, compassionate, empathetic approach that was taken this week from from those within the nationalist community. And they were, I suppose, irked by that, by the fact that um, those scenes with King Charles meeting Michelle O'Neill and Alex Maskey and having a bit of crack and having a laugh uh, at Jeffrey Donaldson's expense, who was standing next to them, you know, that was quite symbolic um, and would be quite difficult, I think, for some within unionism to see those scenes and how the DUP had kind of been, um, I suppose, beaten in a way by Sinn Féin in such, their approach. Such, so. such skill and such ingenuity, as the King That's said. said. Yeah, I don't think that, that was quite a painful comment, I think that was. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a politics perspective, it has been quite a fascinating week to watch. And I think it was quite um, symbolic what Sinn Féin did this week. It was, of course, from a strategic political perspective, incredibly smart for them to do that. Um, and I think it kind of plays into their... Their narrative that they're pushing, especially around Michelle O'Neill, which is that she's going to be a first minister for all, 
Now, of course, the, the question is, it was also reported this week that the Electoral Commission is now looking um, at locations for another election in December. So it could very much be the case that we are all going to be going back to the polls again uh, in a matter of months. Um, you've literally, you've literally stolen my... I've, I've written a question here I was supposed to ask, and now you've you've spoiled it. I'm going... I'm out of sorry, here. I'm sorry. But... Uh, uh, it is it is an interesting one to, to look at because I suppose strategically you can there's not much room for the DUP to make gains if there's another election. You're talking maybe two or three seats that might change hands um, if they can try and claw back some of the TUV vote. But strategically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It costs about five million to do an election, and we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, and you'd be dragging people out to the polls in the depth of winter. And I just don't think that it's, uh, you know, going to have the kind of result that they might be hoping for. But we only have approximately six weeks left now until the uh, clock runs down and there has to be another election called. Unless, of course, the Conservative government changes the rules and allows there to be another six months waiting. Are you going to run again yourself, Emma? Oh, no, don't. Don't ask me that question. I don't know. Did um, you keep your posters? I've kept my posters, but I have been approached by a party, so... I'd have to decide if I want to go to the dark side. Going with the, the, the monster, what's the raving monster loony party? Or, or Count Binface always does very well in London, I believe. Well, I don't know, lad. Look, here, as someone who canvassed, you know, six weeks of canvassing is pretty tough. Doing that in winter? I don't know. And it, it might, you don't know, it might just pan out that it's going to be north and south in the depths of bad winter. You, you're just, you're desperate for that, Mark. Absolutely <laughs> desperate. <laughs> can, I, can I just want to really quickly cover a couple of um, small things, Martin, if it's okay. Obviously, people have seen uh, Killian Woods' report today on the uh, the arms dealer selling their uh, their their houses to uh, Davy Stockbroker's uh, housing fund. It's not new news, unfortunately. We've known that they've been they've been in this with buying up. They've actually bought up social housing stock in in the UK as well. So we're not unique, but it's it's it is it's nice to see people's uh, get get the hackles up a little bit. What sort of didn't get as much traction on it was the fact that a report went into Dara O'Brien's hands and said you're going to miss your targets on 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 housing outputs this year. That's much more important. That that is going to cause much more difficulty for us when, as we move down the line. The other thing, and I know we mentioned the US at the outset, but um, these in institutional investors, folks, with interest rate gain, gains going up now and, and the Fed pushing up interest rates, they're looking at yields that they can guarantee in banks now that, that they don't have to invest so much in property. And the first slowdown uh, quarterly has happened in the US uh, urban areas with these re real estate invest investment trusts going, just, just leaving their money on deposit effectively because they're getting reasonable uh, returns uh, now from the banks. That is something that we've been signaling here for a while. We saw the crash of, of more, new mortgage applications. We saw the great biggest slowdown since 2008, the softening of house prices. Um, we're not immune to this because we this the money is now international and I just think everybody should keep an eye on it because we've we've literally we the IDA sent people out into the world, Maria, you'll know this, to go out and bring in more of these these funds to 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 build these build to rent properties. And now it seems that they're pulling their horns in. You know, I, my heart bleeds for them. Um, I, 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 it's terrible if a, if a vulture fund can't get guaranteed yields in Ireland uh, or, or or decides not to do it. You know, it's terrible. But it, it does mean that that need needs to be met and that need will not go away, even if the even if that level of funding does. Sorry, Martin, I, just, well, I know you yeah, were expecting well, but I just want to look, cover it. We've got to say, too, the house prices in London have started to go on a downturn. So don't think that just because we're in Europe that we're immune from what happens in America. And housing in Ireland has been, and it ties into what Philip was saying, housing has been weaponized and is being weaponized in Ireland as a cause for the far right. And it really is ridiculous that the government has let it get to this situation. Um, I, I kind of think that the, the far right is being enabled by a government that's so incompetent. Um, it's just, it's really desperate that people are left so desperate for housing that they're blaming the worst off, the people in the worst position in society are coming from war-torn countries. They're the problem, but not the government who won't build social housing, just simply will not ideologically oppose to it. I think it's a very dangerous situation in Ireland and has echoes with Sweden as well. I do think so. Can, um, just can I ask if anybody wants to come in on this? The, it's budget season. We're seeing all this nonsense now. Today, the papers were awash with with um, Pascal Dunahoo and Michael McGrath, very upset with all the asks. 
um, I don't know historically, and I can be corrected, if there's ever been a government with a bigger um, kitty of cash to spend in the history of the state. They have literally gazillions of like um, Michael Noonan would call it billions and billions. Um, they, they like if we played within the fiscal rules, so somewhere between twelve and fifteen billion of a war chest we could spend. We couldn't even spend that money in a year, and they're talking about six point seven billion. You know, and it's going to go up to 7.7, 8.7. I don't know uh, what anybody's feels, feels on in the panel are on this, but I do think it, there's a false narrative out there that this is kind of, oh, they're going to smash all records. We have all that money. We have it. And we could use it for one-off spending on public. I don't like saying social housing, Martin. I like saying public, public and affordable. Yeah. Yep. Um, like, Philip, you live in an area that was built on public housing. Am I right? That's it. Yeah. So back in the late 60s and early 70s, the Sweden had what they called the Million Program, and they built one million six thousand homes over the course of ten years. So it can be done. Now, a lot of those places were built. They weren't exactly Ballymun in terms of not having social services around the place, but it was very successful at the time. But it sort of ties in what you're saying there, Tony. Ties into what Martin was saying earlier on about you know the government and housing, like. Basically, what the far right does is that it fills a vacuum left in politics by previous parties, right? And that often happens. It's often the parties of the left who leave it there. A lot of people have a hard time understanding how you can go from centre left to far right so quickly. And it's actually fairly obvious when the centre left or when the state left lets you lets you down, then that's the obvious thing to do because you're going into competition for resources. And that's essentially what the budget is. That's what the discussion in the Irish media that I've seen this morning is a discussion about this. So what can you do? Six point seven billion. Yeah, you can either build shit or or you could do what Fine Gael love to do and Fianna Fáil love to do go, oh, tax cuts, more money in your pocket. And they think that that's the best way, you know, to sort of to pro- provide for people. But that obviously only hits a certain coterie of people. There's a lot of those people that have votes and are going to continue to vote for these things. But that's where the sort of feedback loop begins and ends, right? If I get one or 2% or 5% of a cut, or if, you know, some charge disappears or whatever, I'm happy I'm going to keep voting for that. But what we're lacking on a European level and on a global level is, is this vision. And I go back to the word solidarity, that I used earlier on, right? We have to stop thinking about voting for our own best interests, our own personal best best interests, and start to think about the, the greater good of society, right? There was a lot made of, of criminality, of crime in the run-up to this election, right? Nobody mentioned COVID, right? Which is the biggest thing that's happened in the last century in Europe. Nobody mentioned uh, joining NATO, which is the biggest thing that's happened in Swedish independence history, right? Nobody mentioned those things, but they did mention criminality. Criminality is obviously a problem, right? But nobody ever said, why are young fellas going around shooting one another? Why are young fellas dealing drugs to begin with? Where does this come from? And essentially, it goes back to the same thing. Tony, I'm sure you love a good graph. I'm sure you saw there during the week about these graphs about inequality and how it's rising in the US and in the UK and that that's the root of it. And it's essentially the same thing. Inequality has shot up since the early 90s. Now we have we have had yesterday saw a very big cost of living protest in Mm. Cork. And there is one Jew in Dublin this coming Saturday. And from the numbers that turned out in Cork, I think we can expect a, a quite a big cost of living movement but, to, to take to the streets this coming Saturday. Maria, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, no, I was just, um, I was just going back to what Philip said about equality and what you said about the, it was the Dublin Housing Delivery Group report. So I suppose one of the findings reported in the Business Post today was that um, that that report warns that a plan to plug the shortfall shortfall by purchasing homes from private developers had not worked. So I suppose that's one of the things that you're going back to there about social housing and and like I would have lived in Merino for a long time, which is one of the first affordable housing schemes in Dublin. But um, I suppose one of the reports that we did recently was on disability and housing, and I suppose mm-hmm. that's I suppose that's the those are the groups that are kind of missing out and especially when it comes to private rental. And and we were kind of highlighting how private rental for people who fall just outside the social housing circle, so to say their income is just above perhaps the limit for social housing, are finding it almost impossible to rent on the private market because due to inaccessibility and other issues like that. 
and that like there's a, a huge risk of people vulnerable people becoming homeless and like I was talking to someone who was at a great risk of becoming homeless in the next few days and basically um like if you look at the statistics disabled people make up 13.5 percent of the population but 27 percent of the homeless population so that's what we're going to see and there's a huge worry in the disability sector that they're going to like be the people who are worst off at cost of living they were the worst off in the recession like and they never recovered from that so I suppose that's the issue that there are groups like that that never recovered when everyone else recovered and okay. now they're and, getting and, hit and, again by the yeah, cost they were, of living they, so. they, were all, they never experienced the boom and it's the exactly. same it's the same yeah. with migrant communities traveler communities exactly. all of these, where they're marginalized and you know when we look around and we're sitting here and we're looking around and we'll say to one another how 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 it's starting to bite, how it's starting to feel the pinch and absolutely starting to feel the pinch, but it's already been happening, you know, across different, uh, these different yeah. areas. And like we get emails in because like obviously we um, accept ideas from the public, but we get emails in every day and more and more are from people from vulnerable groups who are feeling this, like are afraid that they're going to become homeless. They're not, they're worried about bills. And it's, it's, it's really obvious from like the contacts that we would get that, like people are being really impacted and they never had that recovery. They just, they never had the money that was maybe given to them. And it's it's that inequality where the vulnerable groups are getting more vulnerable and then we have a small proportion that are fine. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to Philip saying I love a good graph. I do, Philip, as you know, but the one thing that, that, that cracks me up is all the lads talking about the, um, you know, because the economy is booming. It absolutely is booming. Like Ireland looks internationally to be just playing a, a blinder. Yet 2019 inequality, the at risk a, a at risk of poverty level grew. 2020 it, it decreased because of the pandemic supports that actually helped. And then when they were removed, it's gotten worse. And that has gotten worse. It's gotten worse at a faster rate than it was in 20, 2019. And that's with the economy breaking all records, full employment and the highest corporation tax receipts in the history of the state. So, you know, there is a, there's two Ireland's now. And, you know, we very much have, like we talk about, we've, we've come to some some things in the UK before we wrap, but when you talk about Liz Truss talking about needing to ramp up what, what she would call trickle-down economics, we live in, in that in that facility now. That's where we're here. We're sitting here hoping that these huge multinationals will make so much money that hopefully some of it, some of it will trickle down. We have the money, but it, we are so, like, I don't mean to scare people, but the commercial property market is really wobbling. And these companies that we're told are uh, are going to be the bedrock of our, our tax take, they're getting nervous and they're not investing as they were. They're not hiring people as they were. And they're causing people to start thinking, you know, uh, what, what are they calling it? Maria, you might correct me. Is it uh, onshoring in the US? They're telling them to come home? Onshoring yeah, well, is I suppose, thing? yeah, well, one of the things you mentioned there is full employment. And mm-hmm. like there's a difference between full employment where everyone has a livable wage and then you have people being employed who can't actually afford to rent a house or and I suppose the, the massive thing is obviously not being able to afford to buy a house or but even rent a house at the moment, even if you are employed in a in a good job where you're working like every day. So I suppose that's the the big issue and and that was raised um with the living wage versus the minimum wage going up um that the minimum wage is still not the living wage and there were a lot of comments on that in the last few days but and i suppose that is the key thing that we have more than ever people working but it doesn't necessarily mean that people are able to afford the it's, basic cost of living and it is it is also income of uh, inequality of income in ireland is a massive massive issue and when you look this past week that's just gone by, you had politicians getting a 6,500 euro pay rise, which equates to 320 per hour pay rise for politicians. And yet the minimum wage was, was raised by 80 cent. That keeps perpetrating the income, uh, uh, income inequality. It should be the other way around. It should be that the basic uh, the minimum wage went up by 320 and not that politicians shouldn't really have gotten on it and you don't really need an extra 320 euro an hour <laughs> when you're on 150,000 euro you don't need it yeah and in the Cork protest as well they they were raising obviously the 390 million after tax profit made by the ESB so um, obviously that's 
very raw for a lot of people. And that was raised by one of the leaders of the protests um, yesterday. Yeah. Emma, can I ask you just on the on the, the the cost of living? It's looking very bleak. But you know, you're you're living under the 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 caps that that uh, the the UK government run on. How how like we keep you heard more and more talk. People having to choose between eating and heating. It must be really at that stage already coming into the autumn now because like the the the, the economy in the north was already one of the weakest in, in, in the regions. And now, and now you're faced with these huge, despite what caps they're saying, it, it doesn't look good. No, it doesn't. Um, and I suppose just to quickly touch on the budget that's coming out in the South as well. Um, I think that from a political perspective, um, what they deliver in this budget is really going to sort of test the government in terms of the next coming election. Uh, it's widely predicted that Sinn Féin is going to make significant gains and Mary Lou may very well be the next Taoiseach. Um, and I think that the government parties really have to deliver for people if they want to try and stem the tide of that in any shape or form. And one area that I'll be looking very closely at is um, rural communities. Of course, the government is failing all communities, but when it comes to rural infrastructure, public transport and support for rural families and communities, it really is failing significantly. And I'll be paying close attention to see if they do that. And on the cost of living crisis, you know, I've talked about this before, but I really think one key area that could be looked at is reducing the cost of public transport. Uh, we know that in Germany they did it with 90%. It was quite successful. And I would love to see a similar uh, measure being taken across the island of Ireland, really. I think that the governments are not being ambitious or creative enough in looking for solutions that are really going to benefit people in the here and now. And when we looked at the economy in the north and no government in the north, we saw there were some stats coming out where up to 70% of people in Northern Ireland could be in fuel poverty by January. So it really is a very concerning time. And you know, we're all feeling the pinch, but those who are lone parents, who are pensioners, who are in low incomes, they are going into a winter where they are going to be in a situation where they have to choose between eating and heating. And I just think that is absolutely atrocious that we're in that situation and that people could be facing that kind of poverty. So it's a concerning time and nothing's being done to really address it in a creative or ambitious way. I want to just, um, we, we need to kind of wrap up, but, and this is the worst segue in history, but you mentioned buses. Spare a thought for the poor people now who are being told they have to get a bus to the Queen's funeral. I mean, they're talking about dignitaries. They're talking about, you know, members of the Emirati families. They're talking about top top tier politicians, and they're all going to have to get on a bus. Um, I think it's deeply offended by having to take deeply this offended. Yes, well, I, I but, actually uh, think that this Phillips. To, um, sorry, just to flag two things to keep in mind to watch this next week coming through now after the the funeral on Monday. One is the bilateral meeting happening at the UN between Joe Biden and Liz Truss around the Northern Ireland Protocol. So very interesting to watch the language that comes out from that discussion. It was meant to be um, happening before that, but Joe Biden's team have pushed it back to New York, which is interesting from a political perspective alone. And then also the uh, census results on Thursday for Northern Ireland. All of us writers and commentators will be counting down the days until uh, Thursday morning for those results, because it is widely predicted there will be some interesting uh, things in there in terms of identity, in terms of passports held, in terms of Irish language. Uh, so keep an eye out for those on Thursday morning. Very good. Look, Philip, you 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 objected. I heard when you went over to Vegas recently, you wouldn't get a bus. You wanted the limo picking you up as well. Yeah, and he jumped the queue. And he jumped the queue. Seriously, lads, a man of my stature and importance. I mean, you couldn't be standing <laughs> in the queue with the proles. Like, you know? <laughs> well, the, the queue hopping thing was quite interesting because everybody has decided, decided David Beckham deserves a knighthood. Uh, well, he already has one. Jesus, <laughs> but, but you know, it's it's a bit but, I mean. I, I, I've been trying to rack my brain all week. I can't think of anything I would queue for for more than 20 minutes. Uh, yeah. There is nothing I could queue for for more than 20 minutes. Nothing. It's funny, lads. Uh, one of the things that, you know, when you're asked to define or when the far right here were asked to define Swedishness, you know, what is it that makes this culture unique? And one of these absolute fucking morons of the Sweden Democrats came out with, well, we're very good at queuing. You know, and it's just, it's unbelievable. You know, now in fairness, they are, they go and they take a little ticket with the number on it, you know, and they go and they put themselves in the queue. But like to see this thing, and somebody described it this morning as the perfect metaphor for modern society is a queue for, you know, 30 hours to look at somebody in a coffin. If that doesn't say anything about who we are in the modern world, you know, but it, it's fascinating to see how everything else is abandoned now for the last 10 days. I was watching soccer yesterday and everybody's dressed in black, still having the same conversations. But, you know, the things that, you know, other people might uh, un 
uncharitably describe as virtue signaling. And we've had a festival of it for the last 10 days. But it really is amazing how that sort of focuses the mind on this kind of inequality. And when Irish Twitter and African Twitter and Asian Twitter and uh, Jamaican Twitter came together and was going, hang on a second, you're not getting the full story here, you know. But it might be, I mean, does it, you want to give people a little sliver of hope, Tony. I know you hate doing this, but let's, you know, <laughs> let's give them a little sliver of hope here. You would hope that at a time when the far right has made, you know, as I say, this is, I can't describe to you how important what happened in Sweden is. The Queen dying, these kinds of things. It, it, history is full of points, sliding doors moments where things can change. And this might just be one of those times. And it might just be one of those times in Ireland as well. When you when the penny drops and you start to realise that all these problems are of our own making. Right. All of these problems are there because we put them there. And the more people that take responsibility for those democratic choices and the more people who say, you know what, I got that wrong. I want to be involved in changing that. And that I know there's hundreds of listeners to this podcast every week, many of whom do great work like Emma. I've talked to Emma before about the work that she does in Northern Ireland there. The fantastic journalism being done by Noteworthy.ie, which you should support. And if you're not paying for the daughter shack, you should be paying for that, too. But it behooves all of us no matter what size of platform we have, no matter what resources we have, to at least use what little voice we have to affect that change. Because the one thing that I've learned in 20, 20 years of watching the rise of the far right in Sweden is that you're not going to stop people like that by sitting on the fence. You're not going to affect change by sitting on the fence. It's time for us all to get off the fence and to go after this change that we all know is so badly needed, but it's not going to happen without us. Just I'm going to totally ruin Philip's brilliant uh, no. <laughs> talk there. Oh, I tried, Tony, I tried. <laughs> but I just, some of the stuff you're saying about change and like taking responsibility, um, I just thought like uh, Bertie Ahern was one of the things you use that maybe could be a, a nice way to end just about yeah. opening the door oh, yeah. to re- rejoin Fianna Fáil and He's consulting um, over the past 18 months uh, on Northern Ireland and Brexit issues with Michal Martin. And then also um, on Friday, outlets were reporting that he'd been canvassing opinions in preparation for the next presidential election. So I'm going to run against them. Sorry, I have to comment on Bertie. I think that what just, uh, you know, Bertie Ahern coming back into the fold um, in advance of the Good Friday Agreement anniversary next year, it really just points to the fact that there is not that knowledge, understanding and expertise within the party at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I think like that's really evident um, over the last two decades. There has been a downturn uh, in the kind of work on a cross-border basis and understanding the North. The fact that the current government is still so fixated on the two community narrative of Northern Ireland is a, a prime example of how there just isn't a good understanding of what's actually happening in the North. So I think uh, bringing Bertie back into the fold actually shows that they well, have a weakness when it comes to Northern Ireland. Well, it shows a weakness in that Fianna Fáil is a party in decline and Bertie Ahern is not change. Bertie Ahern doesn't signal to young people, 70% of whom are, are considering emigrating from the country when they can't, when they, they're qualified. He doesn't signal any change. He is a lifeline to the past, to exactly wh- what it feels like right now is exactly where it felt like in the, in the mid late eighties. That's what it feels like in Ireland right now, even though there's plenty of jobs, we're still walking around a Dublin that's derelict. We still have the same faces in po- in politics, and we're still at the same politics. Oh, Dublin is Dublin is a wonderful city, and I won't hear a bad word about it. Um, we we are going to we are going to wrap on that positive note. I do think President Bertie Ahern is going to be very good <laughs> um, for the country. He's going to lead us all into a new glorious era. Um, and sorry, sorry, Tony. I think we actually need to make him king. I think we've seen how well the British <laughs> yes. that this week. King Bertie, God save the king, lads. <laughs> he, he goes for he goes for a walk about a kilometer out there, Philip, in a pair of 160 euro acid Kianos. I'm telling you, the man is ready to cut. He's ready. He's getting this. He's like Rocky in the morning, putting eggs in, cracking the eggs in, and drinking them. Well, look, we'll wrap it there. But I'm going to hang on and, and see if anybody has any questions uh, or any comments. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to to Maria, Philip. Emma, again, always brilliant to talk to you guys. Not so much the other fella, and uh, we'll we'll talk to the rest of you. Is uh, what Martin? We've um, well, own, uh, early early in the morning. I think you have me up before nine, Tom. Yeah, yeah. He has, imagine that he, he calls he calls nine early. Talk to you soon, folks. Take care. Tony and Martin. 
Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.